Welcome to Teaching Channel Talks. I'm your host, Wendy Amato. And as a former middle school administrator and classroom teacher, I love bringing you conversations that focus on these grade levels. In this episode, I'm welcoming Katie Powell of the Association of Mid-Level Educators, AMLE. Katie, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. You have an incredible title of Director for Mid-Level Programs. What on earth does that encompass? What are your primary responsibilities? What my job entails is I oversee our successful middle school assessment, which is um, a robust research evidence tool that helps schools gauge their implementation of middle grades best practices. So I live in their data, get really excited over what I'm seeing, the nuances and the mean scores and standard deviation. Um, And I write reports for them that analyze their data, um, try to shed light on what we're seeing from the staff or student or family perspectives and provide recommendations for them based on that feedback from those stakeholder groups. Um, And then I get to work alongside schools in implementation of those recommendations. Um, I run our successful middle school book study. So schools that are interested in professional development um, that really just lays a strong foundation of what it means to be a middle school and who are our middle school learners. Um, And then I also oversee our schools of distinction recognition program. So when schools are doing a really great job living the middle school model and meeting students needs in authentic ways, we have a recognition program for them. So um, I run that program. So I have the privilege of walking with schools through that process as well. Well, that's quite a bit. (laughs) I want to focus on uh, curriculum instruction and assessment, and those certainly uh, cover pretty much everything in education. But uh, in in terms of your responsibilities, and we think about the successful middle school, I'd like to jump in and talk about characteristics of a successful middle school. How how do we know if we're in one? Yeah, very good question. And, you know, the conversation around curriculum instruction and assessment is huge. So when we speak to these topics through our work, we're speaking specifically to the impact on young adolescent learners. So we're not necessarily trying to reach our hands into every bit of curriculum instruction and assessment work out in the industry, but instead to focus on what we know the developmental needs of our middle grades learners are and how we're meeting those needs through curriculum instruction and assessment. Um, So we look at education educators' preparation for working with early adolescent-aged students. Licensure in this area varies tremendously across the country, and people find themselves in the middle school world from either an elementary or a secondary background frequently. So, you know, speaking to the need for professional development specific to the needs of middle school learners, um, that curriculum is an experience for students that is um, challenging, exploratory, integrative, and diverse. Um, Looking at the coverage of health and wellness topics through curriculum, um, that includes SEL topics that we're teaching students how to manage themselves and their interpersonal relationships, having healthy opportunities to engage in movement and learn about their developmental and human experience. Um, That instruction is active, purposeful, um, and democratic, really emphasizing agency for our students in the middle grades experience. And then similarly, that assessment mirrors that as well, that um, students have the opportunity to demonstrate their mastery in ways that are authentic, um, and then actually feed that information back into their learning experiences as well. It sounds good. What does it look like? Well, the good news is it can look like any number of things. Um, You know, we talk so often about the idea of best practice in education, but it really is best practices. Mm -hmm. Research can indicate that something might be successful, but then what that looks like with real human beings in action can vary tremendously, site to site, uh, educator to educator, 
um, you know, student to student. So when we look at this in the world of education, we really are looking that um, the instructional experiences for students are relevant. That if a student says, why do I need to do this? And the answer is because you need a grade in the grade book, that's not going to foster relevance for our um, young adolescent learners, so that their learning experiences are meaningful. Um, many of the standards do tie very authentically to real world um, topics and experiences. So how do we bring the real world, so to speak, into the walls of the school? How do we let learning extend beyond the walls of the school? How do we experience learning in a way that shows that it is meaningful? And when standards or topics don't necessarily lean into natural holistic relevance for students, are we packaging those learning experiences in a way that leverages things that will be of interest to students? Can we connect to their own interests, their own experience, their own story through their curricular exploration too? Um, so exploration is huge in the middle grades. They're just figuring out who they are and what they may be interested in. And we're going to be asking them to declare a career track so that they're you know where they need to be in high school. So we need to be giving them a wide bevy of experiences, which also give them the opportunity to connect with peers around similar interests too. So that fosters that sense of belonging that is so critically important in the middle grades. Um, and like I said, one of the big things we see with curriculum instruction and assessment being implemented in a way that's really developmentally appropriate is that students have more and more agency, more and more voice, where school isn't something that happens to them, but instead that they have agency, that they're in the driver's seat and that they may even be co-creators of curriculum with their instructors. Katie, what you're describing, the student-centered activities, the, the instructional design that puts the students at the center, is that something that can happen regardless of the curriculum that you're told you have to use? How do we uh, dial up or dial, slide the bar on something that we're given that seems set? to make sure that we're reflecting best practices? Yeah, this is an interesting question. And one of the um, challenges I think we're seeing in some schools and districts is that there's been an interesting um, scenario where a school or a district may not be hitting the standardized test scores that they're expected to. So there's pressure points there. And then you might have under or unqualified adults filling teaching positions because of the nature of our workforce right now. Um, and so some districts are making the decision to move to highly scripted, very rigid curriculum um, to help meet some of those demands that they're really feeling. And um, it's understandable to find oneself in that scenario. But there are some teachers that communicate that they don't feel they have the autonomy to lean into student voice and to be responsive to student needs because of the rigidity of that curriculum. And on the other end of that kind of um, limited sense in the, the spectrum of student engagement and student agency is the, the reality that some students, especially our post-COVID learners, seem to be almost averse to having more choice, to having more of a voice. When they're faced with the opportunity to make a choice and have ownership, they may look at their teacher and say, well, just tell me what you want me to do. So we talk about how the entry point to um, giving students more agency might be something that's low threat, that doesn't jeopardize the curriculum, to teach the educator how to let students have more choice and teach students how to be in that decision-making, choice-making role, because that's a skill set that we all need to be learning and developing together. So it might be something as small as, you know, do you want to do a paper version or a digital version? We're seeing more students post-COVID love 
have a paper analog version of something because so much of their life is through a computer screen. Um, it may be, hey, do you want to do math in pencil or erasable pen? Erasable pens have come a long way, bless friction ink. So you can do math in bright purple ink now if you really want to. They even have erasable highlighters and markers these days. So giving students those um, safe latitudes in which they can make choices and we can build that sense that, oh, you know what, students can make choices and it didn't ruin everything. Um, that helps adults and students alike feel the safety with making choice. And then we just very gradually introduce, okay, well now maybe you have a choice board of a couple of options. And then maybe eventually some of those options are student created options, all the way up to then students really being co-creators of curriculum with their adults. I don't know that any educator should show up to school on Monday and go to their young adolescent students and be like, all right, y'all, you're gonna be co-creators of curriculum now, let's do this thing. That we really need to be thoughtful about how we make this happen with our real life human beings, both in the staff sense and our student sense. There really can be a development of this skill and imagine being part of a teaching team where everybody's working on developing these skills of choice and, and self-advocacy and autonomy and that year after year, then you're moving the students up and, uh, and creating a space where maybe, maybe on day one, they can come in and be major contributors to their own right. design. That's incredible. Let's talk a little bit about the variations on licensure. What are middle school instructors facing that they may not be prepared for and how do we help them? Oh, excellent question. Um, we do stand in the space of advocating for middle grade specific licensure whenever yes. possible. Yes. Um, that is not the case in every state and some states have considered changing their licensure. Um, and it's one of those things that if you're removed from the context of how different early adolescent development is, it may make sense because you're more marketable as an educator if your license covers more grade levels. But then the reality of who our middle school learners are becomes really the um, driving force of why specific training for working with middle school students is so beneficial because developmentally they are incredibly unique. So what we may see um, in a scenario where an educator doesn't necessarily have specific preparation in working with middle schoolers is developmentally inappropriate expectations. Um, we often look at them because they have these young adult looking bodies as if they should have maturity. They don't. Um, and so a lot of times even teacher frustration in the world of middle school education is coming from expecting our students to have executive function skills like getting to class on time and staying organized and task initiation that they don't have, inner and intrapersonal skills like regulating themselves and having the social skills to interact with their peers instead of just like smacking them in the back of the head and running off. We really believe that who our middle schoolers are, that this is a time of such potential. Um, they are passionate about so many things and they're learning so much about themselves and the world and they really feel like they can change the world. They really believe this about themselves in this age range. So rather than trying to pigeonhole them and fit them in a narrowly described box, we really should be honoring who they are and helping them find wherever it is they're going to fit in the world and that means exposing them to lots of opportunities. Um, the other weird thing we see with um, teacher preparation for working in the middle grades is that really response of teaching practices, like being able to work with small groups of students in your classroom, being responsive to what you see in your assessment data, um, differentiating your instruction to those needs, sometimes feels very scary to middle school teachers. 
the primary questions are then classroom management oriented. What do I do with the rest of the class when I'm working with these six? How do I make sure that they do what they're supposed to do and not run amok? And that's a skill set that we can be teaching middle school teachers, that it's not enough to be a content area expert if you don't understand how to teach that content to real life human beings in this unique stage of development. So instruction practices may look and feel different in the middle grades than they do in elementary and high school. And we can teach educators to do that. And the great news is it feels better for students, which then means it feels better for us and everyone's happy. So then we keep doing the good things. I don't want to overstate the obvious, but but you are clearly reminding us that AMLE as an organization can provide this kind of support yes. so that mid-level educators can be optimally effective. <laughs> Yes, um, that is our goal as an organization. We stand in the space of supporting the educators who work with students in this age range. So whatever it is that a school or district or organization needs to make that happen, we do that for them. So we have a team um, through our own staff that can do professional development. We engage with a cadre of really um, exciting and energetic ed leaders um, that can speak to a variety of topics as well. We have publications and research, um, po podcasts and um, research journals and all these other resources that educators can lean into. But really the thing that I love best about our organization and that was embodied in our annual conference just a bit ago is that we are a membership organization, which means we're a network. So um, in addition to the tangible resources, you get connected to 35,000 middle school educators around the world who love their jobs and are passionate about what they do. So you don't have to feel like an island. You know, when you tell people what you do for a living and they give you the, you must be crazy or you must be a saint, but there seems to be nothing in between. When you find your people, like you will through our organization, um, then you get to be part of a community. Really, we've been part of a movement advocating for the middle grade since, uh, you know, the 1960s. So we stand in that space to really help folks understand what kids ages 10 to 15 need and how we can meet those needs. So um, it's a, a privilege to be engaged in that work. Katie, you and I agree that it's important to offer students a range of experiences. It just becomes valuable for them. When we have limited experiences ourselves as teachers, how can we provide more wider, broader, deeper to our learners? Uh, excellent question. We really advocate for schools being connected to their communities. Um, it's not necessarily appropriate to expect that a school in and of itself with its own limited budget be providing everything that a young person might need during the school day and in those learning spaces. Um, so we can uh, foster really positive relationships between the school and the community to help take learning into the community. We can leverage the professional resources that exist in the community, show students what's available in the community, especially Especially if our students will someday be the workforce in our community, it's advantageous for them to understand what opportunities are out there. But it also helps them understand how important they are now as middle school students when seemingly important adults in their community are coming into the school and investing in them. Um, this can look like exploratory club opportunities too, since students may not even know what they're into. They may try theater for the first time in the middle grades and be like, oh my gosh, this is my thing. They might try out for a sports team that they've never you know, so much as touch the apparatus for and then been like, okay, I have found my people. This is my thing. Um, they might discover that they're really into, um, you know, technology and the STEAM um, explorations. And so we can give students the opportunity to explore interests through our kinds of clubs and activities in school too, in addition to the actual like courses that students take. Um, and like we 
mentioned earlier, one of the really nice positive consequences of that is that students have the opportunity then to connect with peers. Um, a sense of belonging is absolutely critically important in the middle grades, especially as we're talking about curriculum instruction and assessment learning is vulnerable. So if students don't feel like they belong to the community of their school, they're not likely to achieve greatness academically because they don't feel safe enough to take those academic risks. So when they find their people and a sense of belonging with their classmates through these kinds of exploratory opportunities, then it helps foster that sense of community too. You have classroom teaching experience in ELA and other content areas. Tell me how your personal professional experience is informing your leadership in AMLE. Um, interestingly enough, when the job I now have was first posted um, and someone reached out to me and suggested I apply, I said, thank you very much and deleted the email. Um, <laughs> and when they got back with me and they're like, hey, I see you haven't applied. And I was like, oh, you were serious about that? Um, my first question was, do they really want a teacher for this role? Wow. Um, I was sure that they would want someone with administrative experience, someone who was used to leading schools and organizations. And I was a classroom teacher and I'd held teacher leader roles my entire career. But one of the challenging things as a teacher, even in teacher leading roles, is that we often see ourselves as, quote unquote, just a teacher. So to have the opportunity now with the role I have in the organization to speak to that teaching experience, to speak to how to have collaborative and shared leadership structures in schools where every member of your staff feels empowered to engage in the work of the school, where everyone would identify them as a leader and feel um, empowered to do that work within their role is a gift. Um, but then also since I lead professional development through so much of my role, you know, running our successful middle school book study and doing PD with schools and districts. Then I bring all of the quirky teaching strategies that work with middle school students and use them in professional development. So yes, we're getting our content, but then we're also getting strategies that we can take and use too right away. I love a meeting where people are practicing what they preach and right. you can have simultaneous conversations where this is this is what we're discussing as a group of professionals while we engage in the, the hands-on work at this level so we can see it happening as we're doing it. That, that is um, exactly why you're the right person for your position. And help me, um, can you remind me of all of the areas of expertise from your from your teaching days? Yeah, so I started my teaching career as a special educator, um, and that really became a big part of my philosophy of education. I wasn't intending to go into special education. It was a position that opened up mid-year. I accepted it emergency license and wound up getting my special ed certification. Um, but I found that the flexibility, the innovation required to be an effective special education teacher and meet the really varied and nuanced learning needs of my students in a way that also felt um, culturally acceptable to them because if you're a middle school student and you're receiving special education services, you might have a whole lot of personal feelings about that and there's a lot of social implications for that. So learning to package what I did in a way that um, eliminated as many barriers between myself and my students as possible really became one of the driving forces of how I did my job. So that then became part of my educational story in any role I held. Um, I've um, also worked as a Title I um, uh, coordinator. So I worked doing kindergarten through eighth grade Title I for two schools. Um, and that really helped me get into data and understand the various learning needs of our students. It was really interesting how we would often have students who are identified as um, high ability who aren't meeting standardized test measures. And so students that I would serve would not necessarily fit nicely into any one bucket. So it was really 
nice to be able to just understand a student's needs and how to meet those needs and how to support classroom instructors to be able to meet those needs. Love that aspect of the job. Um, but my favorite was um, serving as a middle school ELA teacher because helping students fall in love with reading, you know, when they first self-identify as not a reader and then you help connect them to a book. And when they start to yell at you when it's time to stop reading and move on to something else and they're like, no, we need more. One and more like, pages, one more page. Yes, it's the magic. It's the magic. Um, so boy, that has been one of my favorite things about my time as an educator to help students see themselves as readers and writers. Um, and you know, in the stories I tell about those experiences, one that always comes to the top of mind is I had a student who uh, had an experience with dyslexia and she had not realized that someone with dyslexia can be a writer and she loved stories but didn't see herself as a writer because of this label that she had and her family had been wonderfully supportive connected her to all kinds of resources from the moment they realized something was going on you know through even now um, as she's in her late high school career but we had the privilege of doing a flip event with the author of how to train your dragon and she shared her experience as an author with dyslexia and my students lit up. She's like, wait a second, you can be an author if you have dyslexia. And I was like, well, yes, you can. And she started writing these stories. And when she was inducted to the National Honor Society at the end of last school year, um, her mother had this beautiful post on Facebook about how what her daughter wants to do is to write and to be a middle school ELA teacher um, and tagged me in the post and shared a little bit about my role in that. And I stand by my assertion that it's not me, but instead this opportunity we have as educators to open doors for our students to help them discover things about themselves that are going to empower them forevermore. So, you know, I don't care if they ever remember my name. I want them to remember how they felt. I want them to remember what they learned and discovered about themselves. And I want them to feel that empowerment go with them forevermore. So that is the absolute privilege of an educator. Perfection. Katie, thank you for being my guest today. Oh, what a pleasure. So thank you so much for the opportunity. To fellow educators everywhere, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to explore the topics that Katie and I discussed today, please check out the show notes at teachingchannel.com slash podcast and be sure to subscribe on whatever listening app you use. I'll see you again soon for the next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.